electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Tonight, last call live from Miami Beach. We are coming to you from the Goldman Sachs Energy, Clean Tech, and Utilities Conference, and we have a high energy hour ahead. But it's not just about energy. We've got a power list of power players from all walks of the economy in just a moment. We're going to speak exclusively with the CEO of Chevron, Mike Worth. Later on, we're going to be joined by real estate guru Don Peebles, one of the kings of the hockey world, and a joint conversation with two of the most highly respected energy analysts in the game. And by the way, Get some stock picks from Goldman's own guys just for you. All that and much more here in Miami Beach where the heat is on. So buckle up from the beach because last call is up right now. Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Sullivan. Good to be back with you today. Okay, all of that is ahead, but first up, the big picture view from one of the world's biggest energy companies, Chevron. After a booming 2022, Chevron and other oil and gas stocks got hit last year as the price of oil fell a few bucks. So what is ahead for this year and beyond? Well, here at the Goldman Sachs Energy and Clean Tech Conference, really difficult to find any kind of clear consensus on the price of oil. It is just as easy to go back there and to find somebody who thinks oil will go down as it is to find somebody who thinks oil will go up. And they can both make great arguments. So let's bring in the CEO of Chevron, Mike Worth. They recently took a $4 billion write-off largely to slow the pace of investments in their native California properties. Also just announced a deal to buy Hess and its huge offshore partnership with Guyana and, believe it or not, ExxonMobil off the coast of South America. Mike Worth, thank you very much for joining us. Ryan, it's good to be with you. All right, yeah, crazy here. And I've never, I meant what I wrote just now, which is I, I've never been at this conference for about a decade and had less of a view of where things may go. Does Chevron have a house view? Do you have a view on where oil prices may go this year? Well, it's tough. And uh, one of the things I've learned in 40 plus years in the energy industry is uh, I can't pick crude oil prices. We've got a, a market where demand has been strong. We had an all-time record uh, oil demand in the world last year, 102 million barrels a year. It's going to grow again this year, set another all-time record. So demand is strong. Supply has been reasonably strong as well, particularly in North America, Canada, the U.S., uh, Latin America, Guyana, Brazil. And then last year, we also saw uh, sanctioned barrels still in the market. And I think that's the thing a lot of people expected early in the year is that the sanctions on uh, Russia, on Iran, would constrain supply more than it turned out. They really did. So we had a market that gradually softened over the course of the year. And I think right now what you see is people not quite sure about the direction going forward. You can build a case, as you said, mm -hmm. uh, for prices to move in either direction. Well, you're a part of it. I mean, the U.S., if, if, I, if somebody had said, will the U.S. hit new record high oil production in 2023, I would have likely answered no. Are you surprised we're at 13, 13.1 million barrels per day? And do you think we can make it to 13 and a half or 14 million? I'm a little surprised at the strength last year. I'm, I'm not surprised that we saw growth. It was a little stronger than I think we would have expected. 
Uh, but no, I wouldn't be surprised to see 13 and a half uh, million barrels a day uh, this year, or even a little bit more than that. This country's got a, a great uh, natural resource base, and it's got an industry unlike any other that's full of innovators, it's full of entrepreneurs, full of great companies that continue to improve the way we extract resources in a way that's lower carbon, less impact on the environment, and can be done in an efficient manner. And so I think that continues to sit underneath the success story of the American energy industry. Maybe with the exception of California. Uh, you guys just took a $4 billion write-off. A lot of that has to do with the, the pullback of investing in your California properties. And you were not alone. We actually just learned about it one hour ago, literally an hour ago, that ExxonMobil is also going to take a big charge. And that will also likely have to do with some offshore properties off of California. I know you're not going to speak for Darren and ExxonMobil, but why the change for Chevron in a state that you have been in for, what, 140 years? Yeah, we actually made the first commercial oil discovery in Pico Canyon. Did not know that. 1879. It's random and interesting. So uh, we've been part of the uh, California story uh, since then for 145 years uh, this year. And we've been part of the growth, part of the success, part of the economic vitality of the state. And we've been a big investor in both the upstream and the downstream through all that period of time. Over that time, uh, the state has evolved. And as you made reference to, Policies there have uh, evolved to a point where it's made it more difficult for us to invest. It's made it less economic for us to invest there. And frankly, the policies are designed to discourage further investment in traditional energy, to encourage investment in other forms of energy. And we've changed our investment plans. We can invest around the world. We've got lots of opportunities. And as we recalibrate that, it rolls through the accounting way it rules and how you look at your uh, business value. And, and that's what results and in I know, the but California's leading the country in the build out of electric cars, and that's great, but there's nobody I've read, maybe you have, that suggests that California will have zero gasoline demand any time in the next number of decades. Maybe you have somebody from, you know, Danville, California, they fly to Houston to see family over Christmas. They're looking at $2.99 a gallon gasoline at a Chevron, maybe somewhere in Texas. They come back and it's five five fifty a gallon, and they're wondering why. Well, the business environment is very different in the two states that you mentioned. Those are actually the two states where we have the most of our employees. So we have I didn't just randomly mentioned. We have uh, we have uh, a large presence in both states, and they've made different choices. And those choices have resulted in different investments, different market environments, yeah. and the citizens of those two states. But I want to be clear: uh, that is not that. Chevron making more money because you're selling gas for five bucks a gallon. That is not mom and pop that owns a station making more money. A lot of this is taxes and regulations. Taxes, correct? regulations. There's a whole series of climate-related fees and credit markets, which uh, also get factored into that. Uh, but no, it's not the profitability of our business is not dramatically different in one state versus the Speaking other. Speaking of climate, you and I, it's a serious topic. You and I have talked about it a lot. You've done some stuff with methane capture as well. Uh, another one of your main competitors getting a little more into, into lithium. What is your macro strategy for Chevron? Will you continue to evolve to be more of a, quote, new energy company? Or will you kind of stay core to what you are now, five years from now? Well, five years from now, the world will be using more oil and gas than it is today. More, not in five years, more. Five years from now, we'll be using more than it is today. We, we meet demand. We don't control demand, we supply demand. And so we will uh, grow our oil and gas business over the next five years. We'll also grow our lower carbon energy businesses. We'll grow renewable fuels. Uh, we'll grow our hydrogen business and we'll grow our carbon capture business. Uh, so we need to 
uh, reduce the emissions from traditional energy, which we're doing, reducing our carbon intensity of oil and gas that we produce today, at the same time as we invest in new technologies to grow new sources of supply as demand for all forms of energy continues to grow. I want to talk macro geopolitical risk. Obviously, you do the deal for Hess. A large part of that is the asset. By the way, partnering with ExxonMobil in Guyana, Venezuela, they've been fighting over Guyana for 200 years, but they are really saber-rattling right now. Is there, and I'm sure you've got people that, that study this, is there any real risk of Venezuelan action on Guyana? And if something were to occur, however large or small, what, I know you don't have the assets yet, but what would be the correct response from the oil side of that? Well, we try to stay out of the geopolitics but of the business. But they're going to be your assets too. But we do face geopolitical risk around the world. In fact, virtually everywhere we operate, we face risks, including, as you mentioned, in our home state. And so these are the realities of our business. Uh, we operate in places where there are border disputes. Uh, we operate on both sides of some of those borders. Overwhelmingly, what you see is these are resolved through discussions, diplomacy, negotiations, not through military actions. And so uh, I can't predict the future in any particular uh, country in the world, but what we've seen, and in fact, we saw the presidents of the two countries meet uh, before Christmas, and I think uh, the rhetoric has uh, de-escalated uh, after that meeting, and our expectation would be that this is resolved through discussions and diplomacy. Last question, you've got a huge operation in Kazakhstan. Obviously, I'm sure much of that oil is in an area or being shipped through an area of the world where missiles are literally flying. How are you analyzing the risk from that? Well, we face, uh, we're very close to the Russia-Ukraine conflict with our Kazakhstan business. We also are the primary supplier of natural gas in Israel and have offshore platforms that have been shut down during the conflict in the Middle East. We've had ships that have been attacked by the Iranian Navy within the last few months in the Straits of Hormuz. Uh, we've got ships that transit through the Red Sea that we work very closely with the U.S. Navy and other military forces to ensure safe passage of those vessels. The, the reality of doing business around the world in our industry is we face these kinds of risks every day. We work hard to mitigate them, to keep our people safe, to keep our assets safe, keep the environment protected. Mike Worth, CEO of Chevron. I know you got a, a conference, probably about eight dinners to go to, Mike, so we appreciate you making the time for us here on CNBC and Last Call. Thank you. Happy New Year. Good All to right, be happy here. Happy New Year as well. Thank you. All right, we are just getting started on deck. We are hitting the Lido deck with the top stock in Miami last year and the CEO of Royal Caribbean. Hey, we may be in South Florida, but it's been a pretty cold January start for stocks. Two of Miami's top market voices will join us for what it signals for your money in 2024. A lot more last call to do. We're back live right after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, 
packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back to a special edition of Last Call. We are live from the Goldman Sachs Energy and Clean Tech Conference in Miami Beach. And while it was nice and fairly sunny here today, it's been a lot more of a cloudy start to the year for the markets and your money. Of course, we came into 24 riding high on a nine-week win streak. But unless we see a massive gain tomorrow, I mean like a record-breaking gain tomorrow, that streak is likely over. The S&P 500 down 1.7% this week, and so this year, the NASDAQ down over 3% in just the first couple of days at 24. And here is something that is random but interesting from our friend Ryan Dietrich. If the S&P 500 falls tomorrow, it would be the first time since 1978 that the index is down the first four days of a new year. I don't need to do the math for you, but that is 46 years ago. If you are wondering, by the way, how the S&P 500 did in 1978, well, it actually closed up a percent, one percent. Not great, but obviously the lousy start did not mean the lousy year. So will history repeat itself? Or is this just kind of a tiny speed bump in an otherwise continued bull run? Let's talk about it with our local market panel, Stone X Chief Market Strategist, Catherine Rooney Vera, Veritas Financial Managing Partner and CNBC contributor, Greg Branch, both now living in Miami. So I, yes, sir. I, I'd say welcome, but I, you're we'll welcoming you welcome. me. Exactly. Welcome to Miami. How about that, Greg? 19, if we fall tomorrow, first time since 1978, it's an interesting stat. Doesn't matter. Does this kind of historical stuff make any difference? I think it does over a long period of time. I'm not sure that we can put it in the type of context, given the things that we've seen the last couple of months in this market, given the disagreements that we're having, even among friends, in this type of market. I think what's more pertinent, Brian, and I couldn't see this three or four weeks ago, is I'm starting to see the negative catalyst formulate. Surprise, surprise, mm-hmm. that's my view. Uh, I will continue to stay with uh, probably great rebuke and great consternation. So you're not changing your view. Unless no. people come at you, I know. No. And uh, the viewers, all due respect to everybody, they think everybody's going to be right all the time. They're not. If you find <laughs> right. somebody that is, let me know. I'd love to interview them and poke holes <laughs> in their story. Exactly. So you, you, you've been negative and you've been wrong. But what are you seeing now, Greg, that, that does worry you a little more? Right. And so when you look back at 2023, uh, it's important to identify why you were wrong. And so I think I and others were wrong because we didn't see not only the stimulus and how it would support the consumer, but we didn't see how the great refinance would position companies to resist the impact of that historic rate hike. But all of that has limited runway. What I think now is the problem is that the Fed is they have an issue. And so while the market has decided that their rate hiking is over, remember I continue to say, again, a great consternation, <laughs> that I think it's more likely that we see a hike than a cut in the first quarter. Wow. Going to get Catherine. I mean, he's just Greg's out there just going against the grain. What is your view? Are we going to have another good year for equities? It would be a shocker if we didn't have some surprise this year. Surprises are inherent, and no one can predict what's going to happen at any predetermined time. So let's protect ourselves for any downside surprises, because what's priced into markets right now is soft landing, no landing, perfect landing. So what I'm telling our clients, Brian, is to buy cheap options. It's basically life insurance, you know? It's it's cheap insurance. Put options. Cheap put options. Correct. Gold. In case one of two things happens. 
either there's a reacceleration in inflation because of inordinate fiscal policy, massive deficits, possible geopolitical tumult or energy prices that, yeah. that move higher, or that, or the opposite side is the hard landing scenario, which I don't think should be so discounted, and it's not in any one scenario. The hard landing meaning recession. And one, one quick follow-up, but I want to hear your views too, but quickly, when you say put option, there's all kinds of options. Sure. How far down the money are we going? Well, you can you can pay 4.7% for a long-term put option that covers you for the entirety of next year, for December of next year. So you sacrifice 4.7%, but the nice thing is you maintain that upside. So even if you do have a bearish view, like Greg and I might have, um, you keep that potential for additional upside. Yeah, you sacrifice at the end of the day 4.7%, but hey, you'll be very happy and, with that and option if, if the market does happen dies. And the market tanks, Correct. you're going to wish you did because you're going to make a lot of money. Correct. I want to keep it controversial and, and go back to something that you just said. I remember throughout most of 2023, Brian, uh, a lot of our colleagues and, and fellow prognosticators would often say to me, the inflation story is a 2022 story. That's over. Well, it is reemerging. And it's reemerging because the market has decided that the Fed is done. The market has decided for the most part of the last six months that we're going to see cuts in the first half. And I think that that's an incorrect view. I think that we're seeing the negative catalyst form. We have an ADP report that's up 60% here. We have a continued historic jobless claims there. We have Barkin coming out saying that hikes are still on the table definitively here. And so all of these things are combining for a view that we have to wonder how can the Fed get to that 4.1% unemployment that they embedded in those well, that's dot the other, That's the other mandate that they've got. Now, they've kind of hinted around themselves, though, Greg, that right. they, they might do this. We're not just making it up. I mean, these are Fed officials sort of saying this. Certainly not making it up. I mean, they're up. saying it in the Fed way, which is they're right. never going to say exactly what they're doing. Right. It always change, oh. and it does. <laughs> no, and, and, and not that they know, right? The data's ever changing. But just because they're saying it doesn't mean that that's what the market's implying. Remember, Brian, there was a almost 100% certainty that there'd be no action on January 31st yep. just two weeks ago. That's moved down to 30%. And so it takes a little while for the market to actually believe the Fed. And so, yeah, they have been saying this. Then they had a posture pivot. And now it seems like they're coming back to the view and the and the takes that they were articulating. Quickly, Catherine, your take, more likely than not, a good year for equities? Um, yeah, I think it's going to be flat, so that's why I prefer fixed income over equities, and I prefer options to protect those technology positions. Best case scenario, soft landing, and you get those laggards leading. But those laggards historically do not outperform in a down economic cycle, and that's what I'm envisioning. And you got this election thing you might have heard about. Exactly. So the stock market could do what it did in 2016 and just kind of freeze up for a couple of months and just wait things out. We'll see what happens. I see Catherine and Greg. It's good to be in your hometown. Yes, sir. Welcome. Welcome. Stay well. Need a little more sun, a little fewer clouds, but all good. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, so now let's go into the market onto our stud and dud du jour. The big winner of the day was Carnival Corp, jumping more than 3%. We're going to have much more on cruising in just a moment. The biggest decliner was APA after yet another oil deal. They're going to buy Calon Petroleum for $2.6 billion. We'll also have more on the oil landscape and stock picks later on in the hour. Let's also get a quick check on futures. Again, if we drop tomorrow on the S&P 500, it will be the first four-day losing streak to begin a year since 1978. We are not indicated that. Futures mildly higher. All right. We have got much more here live from South Florida, including an exclusive with the CEO of Royal Caribbean. And if the industry can top a record 2023-plus, real estate magnate Don Peebles is in the house with where he is seeing opportunity this year. We're live in South Florida, and we are back right after this. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. I'm back. So your daily RBI is back. And since we are here in South Florida, let's get random but interesting about the Miami market. No, not the red hot real estate market, the red hot Miami stock market, because we have data that others don't have. It's our exclusive power city indexes. So we can show you that the 12 biggest market cap companies in the Miami area have an average one year return of 33 percent. That makes Miami and its stocks one of the best performing metro areas in America. But guess what? As good as 33% is, huh, there are many stocks that did a lot built better. Look at that. Lennar, home builder, up 55%. Watsco, they're an HVAC company. They did great last year as well. But no one did better than some of the cruise lines. Carnival, up 93%. But Royal Caribbean taking the crown for Miami with a stunning 126% gain over the past 12 months. And it's possible these big jumps are helping make some employees who maybe own some stock a little bit richer, and some of that money might be going right back into the local economy to help out. So let's bring in the king of Miami stocks, and that is Royal Caribbean and their CEO, Jason Liberty. Jason, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Brian, for having How me. How was that for an intro? Incredible. I'm, I'm now, <laughs> t- I need you at home to introduce me that so way So are as you well. guaranteeing another 126% gain this year? Well, I can promise you we're going to try really hard to, yeah. to continue to, you know, to go out and deliver on that, but we're really what hopeful. Was, what was, Bob? It wasn't just you, the industry, but you obviously topped your competitors. What was it that perpetuated a more than doubling in your equity? Well, I think there's a lot of things in the ingredients that I think that caused our success last year. One, you know, coming out of the pandemic, we were really prepared to launch immediately. Um, but also, when you look at our business, you know, we've been very focused on having the best brands in each segment, having the best ships in each segment, having the best destinations as we rolled out a new destinations experience with Perfect Day of Coco Cay. And of course, we believe we have the best people. That combined with a global sourcing footprint we think is why we, we had performed so well in 2023. It's so hard to comp the last few years because obviously the pandemic. Where are you in relation to 2019 or 2018? Yeah. So on, on, a, on, a, on a yield perspective, on a pricing perspective, um, we are up about 12 or 13% versus where we were um, pre-COVID. So we've seen that pricing increase, but we still trade at a significant dis- discount to land-based vacation. So we're really focused on closing that gap to where we were on a pre-COVID basis. On an earnings basis, you know, we're still fixing our balance sheet for all, all the debt we had to take on. So we're still a little bit lighter than we were in 2019. But we're going to generate over a billion dollars more in EBITDA than we did in 2019. We're here at an energy conference. You guys are obviously a huge consumer of energy. A lot of people come after the cruise lines, by the way, for carbon emissions. I know you're looking at other possibilities. Talk to us about what you guys can do to maybe mitigate some of the emissions. But also, if the price of oil goes up or down $5 a barrel, how much does it impact 
you and the cost of bunker fuel? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take the latter point first. So, so for us, we're about 50 to 60% hedged 12 to 24 months out. And in most times, and we're seeing that today, is when, when there are changes in fuel prices, there's an inverse relationship uh, to the strength of the dollar. So what we're seeing is that, that natural inverse correlation that we have seen in the past, which helps us kind of manage that exposure to fuel and also to currency. Now, each and every day, we keep trying to find and introduce technology onto our ships to minimize the, the, the consumption of fuel, which also helps us um, lower our, our emissions but out there But it's a massive well. input cost. It has to be. It's, it's a massive input cost. It's, 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 our, it's, our, it's our largest cost that we have overall. We try to manage that through hedging. We try to manage that by reducing our consumption and then having that hedging it as well as hedge, having that natural hedge with the inverse relationship with the dollars. We always talk about bookings and things like that. I want to talk about something else. I know you've got earnings. You can't, there's things you can't say due to quiet period. But how about on a macro view, talk to us about spending on the ships during the cruises, not the bookings. Everyone focuses on bookings, how full are the ships, et cetera. I still don't understand how some could have 110% load factor. Maybe you can explain that to me. But what's the spending like in the, in the, in the little universe yeah. inside these, these ships? Yeah. Well, I can tell you that the consumer is very healthy. And when we actually, when we poll our customers and we look at credit card data, you know, they're sitting on a lot of wealth, a lot of savings, and low credit card balances. And so we're very encouraged by that. But what we have seen is about a 30% increase versus 19 on onboard spend. A portion of that is people just spending more per item. But the vast majority of that is during the pandemic, we introduced a new commerce system that allows our guests to be able to book their activities well in advance of getting on the cruise. And that has enabled them to, to really take advantage of the full platform of experiences that we get a chance to offer to them. So the, you're, in your view, the, the consumer is strong. There's Because you don't just pay to get on the ship. There's things you, you pay you that charge. By the way, I don't know how your earnings are going to be, and you, you can't tell us, but there's a tiny little sliver, tiny little sliver, that is courtesy of my mom and that casino. I just want, just want to point that out. <laughs> well, she's welcome all the time. So. Okay, Jason Liberty, CEO of Royal Caribbean, 126% gain, best stock in Miami, one of the best, by the way, the entire S&P 500. Congratulations. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. All right, coming up, we just talked about that hot market. Well, guess what? Real estate also red hot. Real estate icon Don Peoples joining us with maybe some bold predictions for that for this year. Plus, is the tide about the shift for oil or is 50 bucks a barrel on the way? We're going to find out and get some top energy stock picks just for you as last call rolls on. All right, welcome back to Miami, everybody, where the only thing hotter than the weather usually is the real estate market, and it may get even hotter with a bunch of big money rolling in from Chicago and New York. Citadel Securities, based in Chicago, their founder and billionaire CEO Ken Griffin says that Miami could overtake New York as the financial capital of America, and soon, and he is moving their headquarters from Chicago to Miami to prove it. Now, Del Boca Vista, this is not. Florida is actually the number one destination for higher earning young professionals. But with so much money coming in and insurance costs high and rising, where is there still opportunity in South Florida and maybe the country? Let's welcome in billionaire real estate investor Don Peebles, chairman and CEO 
of the People's Corporation as well. We're actually sitting across the street from a hotel that you used to own. And I'm sure you sold it a very nice product. I did, but I shouldn't have sold it. I taught my son a lesson. I taught myself one. Never sell if you don't have to. And that is the Royal Palm, right? Pretty much next door to where we are standing right now. So, Don, welcome. Um, I've appreciated your voice the last couple of years because you've been, a lot of people in real estate are just wildly bullish all the time. And things have been good. But you've been a little more cautious, a little more sort of sanguine about it. What do you see for this year? Will we get that sort of commercial real estate Armageddon that people were talking about? Look, I think things are, I mean, real estate is a very fluctuating business. It's a cyclical business and, and it's geographically cyclical. So that's why we built a business uh, based on product type diversification and geographic diversification. And this market was our first diversification outside of Washington, D.C. when we started on the Royal Palm in 1997 and opened it in 2001. And, uh, and we saw the future of Florida and Miami then. Um, I think that what we're going to see is Florida continue to prosper. I mean, think about this. Florida is now the second largest and strongest residential real estate market in the country. It has usurped New York in number two and gaining on California, which is much, a much larger state as well. So Florida will continue to grow because its fundamentals are good. No state income tax, very pro-business environment, pro-business laws. Um, high quality of life to attract talent and some decent um, educational facilities. But I think the opportunities, I think Miami's had a big run. I think the opportunities are going to be the West Coast. Really? I think we're going to see much more on the yeah, West yeah. Coast. If West Florida, Coast to Florida. Florida's got great weather nine months a year. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Summer, you might want to go. We just throw that graphic back up again, guys. We just showed tax rates. And I don't need to tell you about taxes. But you got New York City, New York State combined, about 14.8. You got California, I think at 13.3, New York State alone, nearly 11%. I could throw New Jersey on there as well. Florida is zero. Now, Florida, let's be clear, gets you in other ways, right? There's property taxes, real estate transfer taxes. But how much does that matter to Florida's success? Well, first of all, Florida doesn't get you as much as New York in terms of property taxes. New York has an archaic property tax system, and the property taxes for a comparable condo or home in New York City are just as high as Miami. Despite um, having no property. Despite having no, no, no income tax. <laughs> you live in a box. Los Angeles, same thing. And so, in the end of the day, it's the fundamentals of the market. It's the quality of life. It's the diversification of the economy. And it's a global city. In fact, Miami and, and Florida as a state has 23% of its market to foreign buyers. 11% of every foreign home purchase in this country is purchased here in Florida. It's, it is amazing. But Ken Griffin, okay, listen, the guy's one of the richest people in the world. He's building like a billion-dollar house down here. He knows what he's doing. But really, could, could this area become the financial capital of America? New, New York still has a lot going for it. Well, Ken's a very smart man, obviously. But by the way, he's building two buildings. He's building a big headquarters down here in Miami that'll be a billion plus dollars. And he's building one in Manhattan. New York City will always be a major financial center and most likely the financial capital of the world. Miami will grow and grow because its fundamentals are strong and more and more people like Ken are moving down here and setting up their businesses. But at some point, you would think that these states like New York and California will get smart and they'll become more competitive. Well, you'd think. But at some point also, does, does Miami or Florida itself peak out? I mean, you get to a point where people can't afford something, even in Florida. I do wonder, it's been so hot, especially post-COVID, that 
I just wonder if you get to a point where people say, I, I, you know, it used to be less expensive, I can't afford it anymore. Florida's a victim a, of your own success. Yeah, but Florida's always had these cycles. I mean, when I came down here in 96 to do business here, everywhere else in the country was struggling and Florida was on fire. Miami was on fire. Then, you know, we had 9-11, it pushed the, the yeah. market stronger. And then we had 2008. No one thought it would come back. Then it started coming back. And then we had COVID. It came back more. So Florida's a two-step forward, one-step backwards. It'll continue to grow. Miami's going to continue to grow. But it'll expand more into other, uh, other markets. So Do you look at any markets? I, would, I hate to use the term undervalued because I have no idea if they're undervalued or not. But you look at a Cleveland, right, or a Detroit, or a, a Ken Griffin, maybe parts of Chicago. What's going to happen with those? We can't let them fail. We, we need to invest in those cities as well. There's still a lot of people who live there. Absolutely. But there are other cities and states that are being very competitive right now. Charlotte, North Carolina, is, and Raleigh-Durham are extremely competitive yes. right now. Very attractive. And they're pulling. And, and that's going to continue to happen. Charlotte's now the second largest banking center in the country, higher than Florida, past San Francisco. I think if you look at Atlanta, Atlanta's been kind of struggling a little bit. It's now recovered. Everybody it's doing moved a lot to better. Charlotte. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> but I think in terms of the, the these uh, major cities that uh, up in the Northeast and the Midwest, I think you got to think about Cleveland continuing to do well. I think you see Pittsburgh bounce back a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I think that you've got um, a dynamic young mayor in Cleveland, for example, who's focused on growth. Um, and I think that you'll see Washington, D.C. bounce back. It's going to go down much further first, though. Um, but a lot of the federal back. workers are back in the office. It's like 25 percent on some days, Don. Yeah, I know. But the, but after the 2024 election, the chances are we're going to have a new president. And that you president, really think so? I do. And um, and I think that president. Um, you think it's going to be the former guy? Come. Yes, I do. And he's not going to let people work remotely. No, no. And, and look, yeah. by the way, and I'm a Democrat, but I'm a realistic uh, Democrat right now. And I think Biden's doing a good job in many areas, but struggling. I should have started the interview with that, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to bring politics into this beautiful moment that we're having. Yeah. Don Peebles, uh, really always appreciate your candor. Thank you. Have a happy new year, and we'll see you again. Thank you. Thank Good you. Brian. All right, up next, Goldman Stock Energy Analyst bringing you the macro view, and they're going to go granular as well with energy stocks to own right now. That is next. All right, welcome back to Last Call, coming to you live from the Goldman Sachs Energy Clean Tech and Utilities Conference right here in Miami. Now, it's obviously been a crazy run for crude the last couple of months. I mean, think about it. Despite growing conflict in the Middle East, more OPEC plus and Saudi production cuts and a number of big deals in energy, oil prices are actually down a couple of bucks from last year. It is likely because American oil production is at a record and supplies from Brazil and Guyana are also popping. So let's kind of tie everything together with us tonight to talk energy for this year. Our two of the most highly respected energy outlets analysts in the field, Goldman Sachs' head of oil research and managing director Don Stroyven, and Goldman Sachs' head of America's natural resources equity research, the stock guy, Neil Mather. Thank you. Well, first of all, thanks for having us at your conference. So I appreciate it. Brian, it means a lot for you to be here. It's a highlight for us to have you every year. Well, thank you very much. Uh, appreciate that. We got both sides. We got the equity side and sort of the, the macro view. I want to start, Don, with you and the macro side. Uh, Houthi missiles over ships, right, in parts you know, of the, near the Arabian Sea. I read a research report from you and your team that suggested this is manageable. 
But if we were to get something in the Straits of Hormuz, we could see a big pop in oil. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's, it's great to be on. The, the Red Sea uh, is a, a route for, for transit. And if you get a prolonged uh, disruption there, dollar oil could be three to four dollars higher. However, the difference with the Strait of Hormuz is that you cannot reroute the ships, and so oil would be trapped. And if you got a disruption of the Strait of Hormuz for a month, prices would rise by 20% and could even eventually double if the disruption of the Strait of Hormuz lasted for longer. To be clear, we think this is highly unlikely to materialize, but it's very important to focus on that tail risk. Yeah. Uh, and we think that the fact that energy provides this hedging value against geopolitical shocks yeah. is one reason to be constructive. But, uh, but to be clear, if, if our CNBC viewers and listeners see a big, you know, our big red sticky breaking news headline that, you know, U.S. Navy recommends ships avoid Straits of Hormuz, something like that, we're going to see a move in the price of crude oil. Yes. I mean, uh, yes. I, but I, that's I, not your base case. But it's not zero case. Right? It's, uh, it's not, not a zero, zero probability uh, scenario. And, and what I think is interesting is that when you look at measures of sort of the geopolitical risk premium in oil prices by looking at options, yeah. the market thinks that it's highly unlikely and the geopolitical risk premium is low, despite the fact that we have two ongoing wars in Russia and the Middle East, two major producers, and despite the fact that oil flows through the Red Sea are down more than 50% since December 18th. So Neil, with you and your team, do great work, by the way. How do you, how do you factor this stuff into, say, I just want to know what Chevron's fair value is, yeah. what ConocoPhillips' fair value is. So we live in a mid-cycle world. There's going to be a lot of volatility. It's going to be like a sine curve. You're going to be higher than mid-cycle. You're going to be lower than mid-cycle. The question is, over the next five years, what's the average Brent price that we'll see? And our view is $80 a barrel. And so about, all here, roads, about here, about here. And so while the back end of the curve, so the, the forward curve is backward dated, it's around $70 a barrel in December 2025. We think when you look at the actual spot price, what our companies are going to realize is going to be closer to $80 Brent, $75 WTI. Now, if we can work off of that mid-cycle mm -hmm. assumption and hold it constant, knowing that it's going to be very volatile, it, now we can think about the valuations. And when we apply that to our equities, there's still a number that uh, of stocks that show good upside on that mid-cycle price. You highlighted Such as? you highlighted two of them, ConocoPhillips and uh, Chevron. Well, I read your buy list and your top picks for the year list. And the keynotes. <laughs> I'm from, citing you back to you. Thank you, sir. So, and the two the keynotes are at our conference, and I know Mike was here earlier today from Chevron. This is a story that we think is at an inflection. They had a very tough 2023 in the Permian in Kazakhstan. When you roll forward to 2025, you've got a company which is going to have a major step up in production growth, major step up in free cash flow. In the next year, it's going to pay you $30 billion in the form of the dividend and the buyback wow. and a lot of optionality in Guyana. In the case of ConocoPhillips, what really matters in energy beyond just quality of your assets is the return on capital employed. What are the returns that you're able to generate on the underlying assets of your business? There's no large cap with a higher ROCE, return on capital employed, than ConocoPhillips. It's run by Ryan Lance, who's done a good job doing counter-cyclical acquisitions towards the bottom of the cycle, which is accrued to ultimately his return. They're an interesting company, Conoco. I don't know a whole lot about them. They got the Willows Project up in Alaska, and I've interviewed Mr. Lance a few times. But where do they fit? Because you've got all these deals that are starting to happen. Where does ConocoPhillips sort of come in there? Yeah, so I think they are a global major but without downstream. So they are the world's largest independent E&P. 
But we are entering into a world where having global capability is important, Brian. Being a shale pure play has its disadvantages uh, because post uh, 2027, the shale industry is going to go from growth to flattening to maybe even declining. And so you want to have that capability to prosecute acreage, prosecute large projects internationally. You highlighted a growth project for yeah. Conoco that's very important, the Willow Project in Alaska. They, they bought an important asset for them in Canada, Sermont, and we characterize a 28% free cash flow wow. yield at our mid-cycle price. So, and they're in the LNG markets as well. And so having that capability to prosecute just beyond just shale yeah. is going to be critical for navigating the next Quickly, decade. Quickly, any smaller mid-cap oil names that you guys are recommending? I Top think, picks, buy list? I think Canada is an interesting place to spend time. The Canadian oils, broadly speaking, and while these are, some of these names are not small, small cap, companies like Synovus, Suncor, Canadian Natural, they're smaller companies than a Conoco or a Chevron. But while Canada might be out of favor from an ESG perspective, the free cash flow is undeniable. And at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. Who can generate the most cash? I have a feeling you and your team will be spending some quality time in Calgary this, this year. Just throwing that out there, giving those names. I'm just going to wait till the, the wait spring to, to go out there. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah, but yeah. you got, you got to hit stampede, though, I'll <laughs> tell you. Neil Mehta, Don Stroven, thank you both. Guys, I know it's your conference. Appreciate you having CNBC here. Exclusively, by the way. All right, coming up. South Florida may be on the cusp of what could be a sports golden era and one of the heads of a team fueling these championship dreams is here. That's next. All right, welcome back. Let's talk sports and let's talk hockey because it's become a South Florida fan favorites being purchased in 2013. We're talking, of course, about the Florida Panthers. And in that time, they've undergone a huge transformation. The Panthers, once kind of a bottom dweller in the NHL, but they have now become a coveted destination for free agents. They got physical, fast-paced brand of hockey they like. I'm sure the beach just steps away, probably does not hurt either. The team went on an epic run to the Stanley Cup final last season. Remember, they beat the Boston Bruins, who had the best record in hockey, I believe, Toronto Maple Leafs, and the Carolina Hurricanes after entering each series as an underdog. Now, this year, the Panthers are off to another strong start, battling for the top spots in the Atlantic Division. And, by the way, South Florida has taken notice. Attendance for the Panthers up nearly 11% just from last year and up 25% over the past two. It's amazing what winning can do. Joining us now to talk about this and how this transformation is transferred into dollars is Florida Panthers president and CEO Matt Caldwell. He is also, by the way, a former Goldman Sachs VP and a veteran of our armed forces. So, Matt, thank you for your service. Absolutely. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. Um, first off, what was it like last year? You beat the Bruins. Yeah. You beat the Maple Leafs. You're the underdog in every one. I mean, what was the insanity level in your office and fan base like? Yeah, it was epic. Um, you know, on January 1st last year, about halfway through the season, we were sitting out of the playoffs by like nine points. The team just went on an epic run just to get in. We got in in the last week of the season. And like you said, Boston had the best record in the league, best regular season record in, in, in history of the NHL. We upset them. And then you were the eight seed, right? You were you're supposed to get smoked. Yeah. Are gonna just, maybe you win one game, maybe. Exactly. And we went down 3-1, and the guys came back. And uh, it, it was historic. And to see the South Florida fans you know, rally behind and pack the arena, 
Uh, it, it was, uh, it was a, something I'll never forget. And we got to the Stanley Cup. We didn't quite win, but uh, we had a taste of it, and the guys are back at it this year. Well, you know, it's it's been... And, and the, the w- winning will, I think, beget winning, right? It'll yeah. beget the winning attitude. It'll bring people here. Matthew Kachuk. Other people want to now play yeah. for the Panthers when 10 years ago, the before you know Vinny Viola bought him, yeah. uh, the organization was fairly in disarray. What is, what is, as a president of a sports team, how do you change the mindset of that team? Yeah, it's, it, it all starts, you mentioned Vinny, it all starts with our owner, incredible commitment. Promise Broward County. Uh, we have a great public-private relationship with them that we're going to bring a Stanley Cup to South Florida. And at the time, like you said, the team was struggling. Um, people used to come to the team to retire and play some golf and go out on the beach. But now it's become a, a real destination franchise yeah. uh, that our GM has coined. We got real stars uh, that that uh, want to be here now. So um, we started from day one, just saying that you know failure is not an option and. Um, you know, there was there was free tickets being given out and just all these kind of gimmicks to get people to come to the games. We said, hey, we're going to put a winner on the ice. It's going to take us time, yeah. but uh, you're going to pay for your tickets. More wins, and, yeah. fewer bobbleheads. That's right. <laughs> and more, from what I understand, more sponsors. So what, oh, what is or for more money from sponsors? Yes. I mean, our revenue is skyrocketed. These last three years, every year, we've set franchise records um, across sponsorship, ticket sales, season tickets, all of our merchandise, food and beverage. Uh, we have a new naming rights partner, Amherst Bank. We're in an Auto Nation on our jersey patch. Uh, we have Visit Lauderdale, which is our local relationship with uh, Fort Lauderdale's uh, you know, Visitors Bureau. They're, they're wonderful. You know, obviously, tourism is huge for South Florida. So, everything's I mean, our overall revenue is more than doubled since uh, the time Vinny. I don't know if you saw this. Probably, a, probably a dumb question, but there, we showed our. We have a Miami stock index that we built. I've been doing for about ten years, and it's been it did very well this year. And a bunch of companies' stocks are soaring. Do you, as a, as a president of a sports team, do you feel any impact from the stock market one way or the other? We do like in the, the sense fan base, of, yeah, overall spending. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, the luxury dollar is so important to you know consumers, and you know if, uh, if the stock market's struggling or people's four hundred one ks are going down, or you know they have you know they're, they're getting worried about their investments, they're less likely to come out to a game. Um, but the last couple of years, especially with the team winning, not just last year, but last couple of years, we've been to the playoffs four straight seasons. Uh, we haven't seen any dip. Uh, but yeah. it is true that you know when people start feeling the squeeze. You know, the thing they start to cut out is luxury. And, you, got, you know, listen, you got a beautiful new practice facility up there in, in, in Fort Lauderdale, which yeah. is South Florida. Yeah, and your name is the Florida Panthers. You're not yeah. the Miami Panthers. There it is. Any chance you got to get, like, Lionel Messi on a pair of skates <laughs> at a game? You know what yeah, I mean? Like, yeah, no, don't break his wrist or if he falls down yeah. or anything. We have so many superstars down here. His arrival has been incredible for, for everyone. The new practice facility is historic. We took over an old uh, war memorial building. You know, we love veterans. Vinny privately, you know, financed the whole project, and we had we just had our first practice a couple of weeks ago. Players showed up in golf carts. We took the golf carts from their their homes and drove, you know, a mile or so and got to the. How much? Field. Very quickly. How much does the zero percent state income tax rate oh, matter? Uh, no, absolutely. I mean, especially when you have like high tax states like New York or California, Canada, when players are in those states, obviously, you know, it's a big difference. When teams go on the road, they you know they get hit with those taxes, so it's a huge advantage for us. Especially it's it's, it's I, I just I you even wonder how they compete like Toronto beautiful city great people but my gosh it's expensive and then the taxes New York City I would imagine just somebody's gonna say I'm gonna go play for the Florida Panthers yeah uh, give myself it, a 10% raise exactly and uh, you know, we have a, a hard salary cap in the NHL you can't go over it you can't pay a lot you're not tax. the Dodgers no you can't do what the Dodgers did so all right it helps out a lot 
Matt Cole, good luck. Epic run, fun to watch, and uh, good luck this season, all right? I appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for joining us here on CNBC and Last Call. Folks, that is it. Last Call live from Miami Beach. We talked about everything, real estate, the stock market, energy in between, and even a little bit of hockey, which I know arguably very little about. I'll see everybody on Monday. You have a great night, everybody. Shark Tank is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.